my cat Klaus is uh, he's starting to channel uh, one of yours and just like swatting at the microphone and like bite me because <laughs> I'm not paying attention to him. It's because you got a fucking beef jerky stick in your hand. He wants to You over here waving around some cured meat and being like, I don't know why this cat keeps swatting at me. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, you know, we don't have to get into it uh, in, in depth. It, you know, it's not worth it really, but the, but, uh, Jeremy shared with us this new Bloomberg piece on how 23andMe uh, is using its massive accumulation of genetic data to start uh, developing and trialing drugs. Like it's, it's you know, it, it wants to make drugs using insights from millions of customers' DNA samples and doesn't think that should bother anyone. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's a good interesting piece in part because on one hand it shows what we all knew was true which was uh you know cons- direct to consumer genetic testing was really just a ploy to gather a bunch of data uh and it was in the original pitch document for 23 and me that this was just going to be step 1 and then like you know later they were going to get you know buku profits from turning around and using that data to develop drugs and and you know uh, disease treatments and stuff like that and that's that's what the pivot was right the pivot was going to be from uh you know a a, a big tech uh, you know, data collection to big pharma drug development. But it, this, this piece is fucking funny as hell because it, the founder and CEO, um, Ann Wojcicki, I'm Polish, but only by name only. I cannot say Wojcicki. Wojcicki. Ann Wojcicki, uh, who, who is also Sergey Brin's um, ex-wife, like they were married together. Uh, they, were, they were married. And so she's coming from a long lineage of some really, you know, head in the clouds, uh, tech utopian thinking. But there are some prime quotes from her in this piece. One of them said, you know, the, the author says, Wachitsky's conversations tend to be shot through with an older strain of Web 2.0 techno-optimism about ways to better connect people with, in this case, how their medicines get made and to cut through the randomness and waste that f- suffuses the science of drug making. Quote, one of our core values is like, we're all this together, she says. One thing I always think is a tragedy is that you develop a drug and then people hate you. I'm really interested in, can we actually be the first drug development group that is loved by people? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people love LSD. It may not work well for me, but I know a lot of people it works well for. (laughs) I I hate these people. I really do. I mean, these people are every... Everything we should be against. I mean, what kind of master plan? What kind of master plan? I also it's it's also wild to forget her connection to uh, Google, right? Because she was uh, married to uh, Sergey Brin, right? Um, who co-founded Google? But it's like you know, when I hear that shit, I'm just like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Google's there. Google's right there, as the article says. Like this idea that you can not only consume everything you can in the world, but then vaguely be like. What if they all love us for this? What if we make, can we make it so they love us for stealing every single shred of data about them? 
And doing so in such a duplicitous way, right? Like, you know, just, just straight up fooling people into giving you their genetic data. It, it's, it's, it's really wild. It is this thing that the like Silicon Valley, it, they want to be loved. They so desperately want you to love them for their transgressions, right? Like it's all about means and ends, right? The means justify the ends and the ends are, you know, their own self-interest. And, but they always want to, they always want to use stuff like, you know, well, but, but we're developing drugs. That's, that's good. That contributes to society or we're ordering the world's information. That's good. That contributes to society. Quit asking questions about how we're doing it, right? Just focus on what we say we want to do. Uh, don't ask if we're actually doing it. Just, 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 just focus on what we say we want right. to do. Let's read our uh, lips. There was a time when like people wanted to know what was being put in their food. Like, you know, you had all those like hot dog commercials, you know, nothing but a hundred percent beef. You know, knowing that like back before that, they were putting like pig buttholes and yeah. And also like, like fingers from uh people that worked in the factory that got like chopped off and got, you know, mm, uh, just ground into the, into the slurry. Reminds me of, uh, I just saw Les Miss, Les Miss, uh, last night. And, um, there's a scene where they're just basically chopping up limbs or parts of limbs to put in the sausage to sell to people whose limbs they just. Hey, Jason, mm-hmm. show up the tattoo. <laughs> I do have a lame is tattoo. Ed. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Amazing. Dude, that movie is really fucking good. I got to read the book. I love the book. I got the tattoo from, I'm, uh, you know, I got it from the book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I can't say anything. I've got, I've got two robots tattooed on my legs and like we're ostensibly an anti-AI like <laughs> podcast. So ostensibly. Those are mech Luddite. Those are mecha Luddites. That's right. I mean. That's right. Uh, but there's one more quote I want to get to. In this uh, this piece on twenty three and me, which, which just you know it it beautifully echoes uh, that that her Google connection. So you know the piece ends saying, in some cases, after all, one individual can hold the key to a world of biomedicine. Take the famous case of Henrietta Lacks, whose family struggled in poverty for years after researchers turned her cancer cells into a critical research tool that made millions of dollars. With a far greater range of the human genome decoded, it's easy to envision a Gattaca-esque future in which the DNA of the masses is mined for personalized miracle cures affordable only to the super rich. Wachitsky says that's just not going to happen. Quote, we're not evil. Our brand is being direct to consumer and affordable. (laughs) End quote. For the time being, she's focused on the long, painful process of drug development. She'd like to think she's earned some trust, but she hasn't come this far on faith. I love that is such a very strange justification for not being evil and and by extension, a conception of what it means to be good. Not being evil means uh, being direct to consumer and affordable. I'm a direct to consumer, consumer, I'm affordable, but also I'm focused on the long term. I'm focused on drug development, which is painful. You know, all these subsidies, painful. You know, I've earned trust. I'm a good guy. I mean, 
you know, Google's motto was don't be evil. Like she must know, she must know. Oh yeah. Like, like yeah. she's doing an allusion to that. Yeah. But everyone knows that isn't like that old vapid motto means fucking nothing. So it's very funny to be so obtuse to be like, Oh, you think we're, we're, oh, you lay out this very plausible dystopian, uh, you know, near future of inequity and in healthcare and access to the drugs we're developing. That's not us. That's not me. We're not evil. My, my no, shirt we like that says we're not evil is raising a lot of questions already answered <laughs> by my shirt. <laughs> my, as I said, my shirt says very clearly. <laughs> I do like that morality is defined by being direct to consumer. <laughs> like that that old uh, that old struggle between direct to consumer and evil. <laughs> How can I be evil if I'm providing what the consumers want? Huh? If they want, if they want child, if they want iPhones, then we do it. And sometimes we use child labor and sometimes we use slave labor, but direct consumer, you know, is what they want. Cut out the middleman. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 118 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. We got an action-packed duo of episodes ahead of us. Um, we are going to be looking into a, a story that doesn't get anywhere near as much attention as it deserves, a technology that doesn't get anywhere near as much analysis as it deserves, you know, in the Western media. Some of y'all might have heard of ADAR, which is this big uh, biometric identity database in India. But even me, right? Like, like I study this shit for a living and I've only heard of ADAR. I only have a, I only had a passing knowledge of what ADAR was, what it was meant to do, how it actually worked. Um, so we're going to dig into that uh, much more in depth. But before we get to there, there is one more thing I want, I want us to riff on that I saw just because it's very, very funny. Uh, so, I saw some. I saw some somebody post on Twitter um, this cover article from Wired magazine back in their uh, July of 1997 issue, and the cover story for this article is called "The Long Boom." We're facing 25 years of prosperity, freedom, and a better environment for the whole world. You got a problem with that? So. This is a, it's a very, very funny article because we are now reaching the 25 year point where we can look back on the predictions that this big cover story and Wired article laid out and be like, all right, did it come true? Did these quote unquote futurists uh, actually know what the fuck they were talking about? Would you be surprised to learn that the answer is hell no, they didn't. <laughs> 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 so they, they lay out this uh, scenario or the logic of the long boom, as they call it, where the authors of this article say that two major forces, fundamental technological change and a new ethos of openness are driving through our era, forces that could bring us 
uh, bring about the long boom, a 25-year global expansion. So they, they talk about how like waves of new technology are going to lead to higher productivity gains, which is going to lead to sustained economic growth in balance with nature, which is going to lead to increasing prosperity. And also, unprecedented globalization and openness is going to lead to the Asian economy booms, which is going to lead to the U.S. economy accelerates, which is going to lead to Europe and Russia restructure, which is going to lead to the whole world follows, which is going to lead to increasing integration. So through increasing integration and increasing prosperity, that gives us the long boom or the 21st century civilization of civilizations. That's right. This is the future, baby. This is we're, the future. We're, we're, I mean, this is the now. This was the future 25 years ago, and we are now at the 25 years mark. So is 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 that our future? Is that is is that our future? <laughs> what what I like is there's there's 10 plagues or like 10 like signs of a true like dystopia that could possibly take place. And we've already seen seven of them. Mm-hmm. Most of those which in like what the past three years? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go through them because I think it's very funny because, you know, like it like good futurists, right? They have to lay out that, you know, the long boom is just a scenario, but there are things that could happen that they call 10 scenario spoilers, right? 10 things that could uh, uh, cause us to divert from this pathway of the long boom of the civilization of civilizations they lay out. I want to go through each of these 10 and then we can just give it a, a, a yes or no mark. <laughs> so, all right. Number one. Number one scenario spoiler. Tensions between China and the U.S. escalate into a new Cold War bordering on a hot one. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> all right. So. That's spoiler number Man, one. It's a hot one. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, I think a war between the two most powerful countries in the world could derail a lot of things. Right? And lo and behold, uh, the Cold War is heating up. Right. <laughs> All right. Spoiler number two. New technologies turn out to be a bust. They simply don't bring the expected productivity increases or the big economic boost. Well, no fucking shit, dude. Why do you think we're doing this fucking podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. That's a, that's another mark. <laughs> Uh, spoiler number three. Yeah, TMK is the harbinger. You know, the the, the prophet of doom. Uh, you know, <laughs> if, if the if the TMK crow flies west, then you know the spoiler is coming. <laughs> All right, spoiler number three. Russia devolves into a kleptocracy run by a mafia, or retreats into quasi-communist nationalism that threatens Europe. I mean, they got. All right, half marks on that. It is a kleptocracy. <laughs> it's not quasi-communist, though. Right. That's some real like like post like not like post-Soviet '90s shit of like, what if Russia becomes communist again? And nationalist. <laughs> yeah, com- nationalist communism. Y'all heard of nationalist socialism? What about nationalist communism? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is a national a natcom? <laughs> Quasi-communist nationalism. 
I saw a tweet the other day that someone had put, uh, it's like, why don't Americans call their billionaires uh, oligarchs? You know, it's because capitalists here will lose their fucking mind if we refer to them as oligarchs. That's what they are, though. Oh, yeah. Only Russia has oligarchs. Uh, The U.S. has business people. We have entrepreneurs, self-made men, um, investors, uh, lucky winners, um, financiers, um, founders, um, inventors, yeah, yes, you may come from a family that once owned an entire chunk of this country or owned massive amounts of the land in this part or that part of the country. You're not an oligarch, you're just what you're just lucky. You might be Bill Gates who owns like an immense amount of farmland. <laughs> and, and yeah, su- isn't he the largest private holder of farmland in the country? Yes, and supplies all of the potatoes to McDonald's. Score! <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, listen, uh, there's this bit in, um, there's this bit in secession, non-secession, in billions where he's like, I don't want to, I don't want to have a good deal with the bank. I want to be the bank. And Bill Gates, he was like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be at McDonald's eating French fries. I want to give them the potatoes for the French fries. If you give them potatoes, they have to give you the French fries. This is all what that boils down to. Smart. I also did learn uh, just recently that Bill Gates is one of the few people that has a McDonald's gold card, which means I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) Which means he can. If I give you all the potatoes, you better give me a fucking gold card. You better give me a fucking gold card. (laughs) But you know what you can do with a McDonald's gold card? That you can. What can you do with it? He can go to any McDonald's and get uh, and and not have to pay for anything. Nice. Is there? I wonder if there's a limit. I wonder if he's like, can I get like, uh, oh, what do you guys want? Twenty Big Macs. Uh, 40 McChickens, uh, 20 grilled chickens. McRib is back, bro. Uh, 100, yeah, 100 McRibs and then uh, 50 apple pies. And they're like, no, listen, I don't give a fuck. Take that gold card elsewhere. And we will not accept your service here. Thank God Bill Gates never has to pay for his McDonald's. Thank God. I can tell you right now, if he rolled into a, into a McDonald's with that type of attitude, they'd probably kick his ass in the lobby (laughs) fast food workers they do not give a fuck about what you were in there to get if you piss them off i'll be snatching that gold card from him (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm gonna run that back they got me at the register they're like uh are you bill gates (coughs) you trying to say something You gotta say something. I'm gonna act. I'm gonna activate that microchips uh, your vaccine if you keep acting Dude, up. Dude, <laughs> if I had something that fake recognized me as Bill Gates or some shit, oh my god, I'd play it up all the time. I'd be like, you don't. That's funny. Why don't you think I'm black? Why don't you think Bill Gates is black? That's interesting. I didn't know you were racist. I'll take my business elsewhere. I right. gaslight the shit out of people. All right, we gotta get the spoiler number four. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Uh, your Europe's integration process grinds to a halt. Eastern and Western Europe can't finesse a reunification, and even the European Union process breaks down. I mean, they got it mostly right, but it wasn't Eastern and Western Europe. <laughs> it was the UK and Europe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was the UK and Europe, and then also Loki Germany, just like beating the shit out of uh, Southern Europe being like oh, you can't get in you can't get in <laughs> that is true 
Spoiler number five, major ecological crisis causes a global climate change that, among other things, disrupts the food supply, causing right. big price increases everywhere and sporadic famines. Yes. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yes. <laughs> These motherfucking futurists and Wired, were they had the, the length of heaven and they were running it, but they, they accidentally put it in reverse and all of the spoilers they laid out came true and none of the actual shit they said was gonna happen came true <laughs> yeah right <laughs> oh imagine that you're like i have this beautiful vision for humanity but only if these things don't come true all of them come true <laughs> yeah yeah he, he was doing, he was doing the wrong type of analysis, analysis. <laughs> All right, spoiler number six. Major rise in crime and terrorism forces the world to pull back in fear. People who constantly feel they could be blown up or ripped off are not in the mood to reach out and open up. Motherfucker, this was 1997. They not only foresaw 9 11, they foresaw NFTs. <laughs> they oh they foresaw Al Qaeda and Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, dude. If, oh my God, I I would love to go back in time and be like, okay, look, there's gonna be this new way to launder money, right? You're gonna take an image of something, put it on the internet. Oh yeah, that it's a okay. Don't don't worry about what the internet is. You're gonna take an image of something and you're gonna put it on this magical network and uh, sell it. You know, artwork has been a means for people to launder money, like a arbitrary evaluation on a piece of art that, I mean, it's between here and there. Like look at Jackson Pollock's art and tell me that it's, that's worth 40, 40, $40 million to you. I mean, you're right. It's actually worth $45 million. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're exactly right. You're actually, the the you're art exactly world right. is absolutely just uh, tax evasion and money laundering, but it is very funny to, to group those things together. Uh, people are either going to be afraid of, being blown up or ripped off. Why not both? Why not both? Mm. <laughs> um, all right. Spoiler number seven. Uh, so, so far, all of these things have come true, except for the Russia one is only like half true. <laughs> so, spoiler number seven. The cumulative escalation in pollution causes a dramatic increase in cancer, which overwhelms the ill-prepared health system. So, I mean, that's kind of coming true, but based on these people's track records, we better be looking for a sharp increase in cancer in the very near future. Because yeah. if they say this is not, if they say this is a spoiler, it's going to happen. <laughs> Look at Cancer Alley and places where there's a lot of oil refineries and there's a mm. lot of people that are being diagnosed with cancer probably late in life because a lot of them don't have health insurance or means for proper health care. There's a huge area in Louisiana. It's called Cancer Alley. Mm -hmm. And one, one in three people are diagnosed with some form of cancer at some point in their life because something like 70% of all refinery pollution comes from this one area. Mm. And if we multiply that across a wider spectrum, maybe, maybe they have, they were onto something. But yeah, you're right. They're running that lath of heaven in reverse. And it's just. <laughs> 
winding the clock backwards, man. Uh huh. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And and yeah, the what you just laid out here is a, is essentially a sacrifice zone, right? Like Cancer Alley, that one part in Louisiana is just a big old sacrifice zone uh, for oil production. Uh, and man, yeah. So just wait for wait for those. To the, uh, those demographics to spread out even wider. So, that, you know, not just in one geography. All right. Spoiler number eight, energy prices go through the roof. Convulsions in the Middle East disrupt the oil supply and alternative energy sources fail to materialize. Again, this was 1997. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, another another mark against them because gas prices are through the roof. Uh, yeah. Alternative energy sources are still not really here. And I mean, the yeah. biggest hope right now is Tesla and talk about getting home. ripped off. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's also interesting to see that even though the I feel like or part of me feels like the the, the attempts to grow green energy are going to be outpaced by the ability now of some of these uh, dirty fossil fuel um, operations to now have longer half-lives because of uh, crypto mining and Mm -hmm. also because of the refusal to cut their subsidies, you know, whereas like if we had just stranded their assets, which is where you just basically make it such that it's more, it's there's no profit incentive and there's no rationale in keeping some facility running we could have closed up shop a while ago, but you can't do that because that would sh- that would shock the global energy nexus of um, fossil fuel production, and we can't have that mm-hmm. keep fossil capital going forever. Um, yeah, I you know, and I think also it was a good it's a good call. I mean, like at every point, at every point over the we've known what's going to happen with climate change. Has anyone mm-hmm. really given like has anyone with power given a single fuck? No, for the decades. Man, all those world leaders at the at, at COP, you know, uh, at the COP meeting, they were throwing fucking like pennies into a wishing fountain, being like, "I sure hope someone does something about this." Damn, you know, I'm sitting here, me and my friends, most powerful people in the world. Let's flip a coin for world peace. Let's do it. Yeah, two of us are at war with each other. Let's do it. Let me kiss this penny and throw it in a fountain and be like, "I, I sure hope someone with power does something about this." <laughs> Y'all kids got this right. <laughs> it's really um i think it's it's really amazing so good good call for them on that spoiler you know we do live in that hell world but y'all ain't ready for spoiler number nine y'all ain't ready for this i'm not (laughs) number nine an uncontrollable plague a modern day influenza epidemic or its equivalent (laughs) like wildfire killing upward of 200 million people (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) oh Fuck. Let me see. Let me see how many people COVID killed. 257 million cases, 5 million deaths. No, it's been more than 5 million deaths, right? That would just be the U.S. No, no, no. The U.S. has only had, the U.S. has had almost a million. The U.S. has had like 770,000. Oh, okay. Damn, ain't as bad as I thought it was. I mean, 5 million reported. I mean, like, let's be clear. Me, I'm a, I'm a COVID uh, statistics death truther. I don't think most countries are accurately reporting them. Oh. I'm probably under-reporting. Um, oh, so, but, so 5 million, you know, uh, do whatever calculation you want to in your head about that. And it couldn't have come in a worse time. Yeah, you know, at least it wasn't 200 million like they said yeah, it could yeah. be. So. It could have been. I mean, they had 200, they had 200, we have 257 million cases, uh, half a million a day, it seems like. So mm. 5K deaths a day. 
a bit terrifying. You know? mm-hmm. Is that? I mean, in the U.S., doesn't that mean that that like something like at least half of Americans have been uh, have gotten COVID? I think so. I think it's a yeah. How like many half of the population, and we don't even know what the long term effects of that are. So we're going to probably see that like going forward. And so forty seven million, and I would say that's probably what like you know of adults, adults in the country. How many adults in the United States? I would say about two hundred million adults. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's like there's more yeah. adults than children. There's about yeah two hundred fifty eight point three million adults, forty seven point seven million cases. I think the vast majority of the cases, if I remember the demographic data I was looking at, have been adults. Um, so yeah, forty eight million cases, thirty eight million recoveries, um, almost eight hundred thousand deaths, um, and then that leaves us with about. I want to say close to 9 million people who have not fully recovered long haul, some sort of like currently struggling with a long form of it. Mm-hmm. Um, great. <laughs> great numbers. Cool. We're, <laughs> we're running those death numbers right now. <laughs> Spoiler number 10. A social and cultural backlash, backlash stops progress dead in its tracks. Human beings need to choose to move forward. Yeah. So, all right, y'all missed on that one. That 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 just just well, you know that that's the fear of luddites, really. You know they see us coming up in their rearview mirror. <laughs> you know, say, y'all just want to stop progress. You know. Oh yeah, I, I want to stop someone's progress. You know, <laughs> some progress. So I so I guess out of ten, they actually uh, only missed one and a half times. <laughs> okay, so they did good, better than I expected. Jesus, I expected a bunch of whiffs. I mean, what's wild here is that you know, like I said, they they were running that late to heaven in reverse. It looks like you know, it looked like one of us went back in time and we're like, hold up, hold up. Y'all, y'all, y'all need to think about this. Like, how about these scenarios? What, what if this happens? Huh? What, if, what if this happens? But in reality, what that means is that the writing on the wall for a lot of this shit that we definitively and definitely live in the bad future. There, there is no, uh, you know, no, no doubt about that. No ifs, ands, and buts about that. Um, mm-hmm. But what this says to me is that, you know, these people could write this article in 1997 laying out, you know, their vision of the long boom. And then, but at the same time, with just a little bit of awareness of social, political, and ecological trends, be like, yeah, well, you know, these 10 really, really bad things could happen and derail us. And, you know, eight and a half of those bad things came true. Like the, that means the writing has been on the wall for this shit for a long ass time. Not that they gave a fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And none of this stuff came out of nowhere, right? Like it was all foreseeable, but it was these motherfucking, you know, futurists like this writing these wired articles that are the people telling us, not to worry about that. Don't pay attention to it, right? Like that's not going to happen. We created the uh, torment nexus from the uh, book. Do not create the torment nexus. <laughs> exactly. It almost feels like John Tudor went back in time and wrote for Wired magazine instead of going on like the old coast to coast episodes talking about how there was going to be a civil war in America <laughs> in the 2030s. He just went back in time and just wrote articles for how America really was in the 2020s for Wired. Mm-hmm. 
I wanted I wanted us to riff through that. You know, I, I couldn't. I, I saw that and I was like, I can't. I can't leave this aside. I cannot leave this aside. Thank you for sharing with us the predictions about the future and how most of them came through. <laughs> yeah, most of the, all the bad ones, none of the good ones. <laughs> hey, where were some of the good ones? <laughs> I mean, we laid out right where it's like, uh, yo, higher productivity, sustained economic growth, uh, you know, globalization and openness and integration, you know, increasing prosperity, all of this stuff. So, you know, that that shit did come true if you were in if you're in the like top ten percent you know, of, of wealth. You guys think that uh, Bill Gates has an honorary PhD from Hamburger University? Come on, you know he So as I said at the top of the show, Adar is this just giant, massive biometric identity database that has been built in India um, by the Indian government and is, you know, seeking to enroll all 1.2 billion residents of India into this database, providing them with a unique identity, uh, a unique identity number tied to demographic information, identity documents, as well as biometrics, namely fingerprinting and iris scanning. You know, this is massive, right? It's huge. The one of, if not the largest databases of this kind in the world run by the Indian government meant to be a kind of platform for both private and public services. But as, you know, as I was saying as well, and I think it's the same with you as I like, we kind of had a passing awareness that Adar existed, but didn't really know what it was mm-hmm. or how it was built or why it was built or how it's being used or the rollout, any, any, any of this information. I mean, I think that's largely uh, because the, the West, like the Western slant of a lot of the media and frankly, like the academic work does not pay a lot of attention to these kinds of things and really only pays attention to them when it's hap- when it's stuff happening in China, because that kind of feeds into, uh, you know, that like West versus East rhetoric uh, feeds into pointing fingers at China and being like, look what's happening over here, but pay no attention to what's happening. Look what's happening over there, but pay no attention to what's happening over here. And, you know. India and Adar has largely escaped the uh, escaped attention, but it's wor- it's absolutely worth us getting into into this, and we're gonna do it through the some just fantastic ethnographic work by a scholar named uh, Ranjit Singh who did his PhD uh, in science and technology studies at Cornell University, same field that I have my PhD in, and is now a a postdoc at Data and Society Institute and has over the last um, couple years been publishing, based on his dissertation work uh, on Adar, some just really, really revealing, interesting, uh, crucial studies on this platform, on the people who built the platform, 
and on its kind of rollout and its effect, uh, you know, in Indian society. For the remainder of this episode, we're going to dig into one of uh, uh, Ranjit Singh's articles published in the Journal of South Asian Studies called Give Me a Database and I Will Raise the Nation State. And this article really focuses on those organizational and operational questions, which are absolutely foundational for understanding what Adar is. So here, you know, he's he's really explaining through ethnographic study with um, the designers of the platform, like, how does it work? What were they thinking in terms of how they designed it, how they built it, and why? What, what purpose is it meant to have in Indian society? So, that's all going to be crucial foundation. I mean, I, I should also say the same foundation because Adar is a Hindi word that means foundation or alternatively could mean backbone. So it's kind right. of like this foundation or backbone of the of Indian government, uh, you know, this bureaucratic backbone. And so that'll give us a really crucial foundation for understanding Adar as a system. And then, you know, I'll, I'll just flag it right now we're going to in the premium episode on patreon later this week we're going to dig much deeper into those more social questions of how is this actually rolling out you know what is this process of trying to enroll 1.2 billion people into this platform into this into this database how is that actually happening and what does it mean at a social level to have this very data intensive, data driven view of the population and through the lens of, uh, of, of, a, of a data base infrastructure. So there's a lot to get into. This is absolutely not going to be a one and done or even a two and done uh, episode. This is really the, you know, this is, this is, you know, Adar 101. Uh, this is something that we are going to go back to more and more um, and talk to people like Ranjit Singh um, and others studying this to get an even more like in-depth view and analysis of, of a system that, you know, we, we have to understand not only because it's just so massive and it's affecting, you know, a huge portion of the global population you know, because India is such a large country, but also because a lot of other places are, you know, a lot of other governments, a lot of bureaucracies, a lot of companies are looking at Adar as well, being like, how's this going? Let, let's keep a close eye on it because maybe we want to do something similar if it, if it works out well over there. Yeah, and I think I think that's also part of the the thing to watch out for here, right? Because Ardar, Ardar comes out of a kind of compelling you know, in a sense, rationale, right? So 1.2 billion people in India, and they have a huge problem in terms of duplicate of duplicate records, right? And so they're asking themselves, how is it that we can uh, deduplicate our records? The way that we've been using it, the way that we've been trying to address this is really by relying on the demographic fields, as they explain, so name, address, age, gender, et cetera, and then identity documents, which rely on those demographic fields, and then personal reference checks, which are you know calling up someone that you may know as a, as another way to verify your identity. But these that can be forged, you know, falsified. These can be stolen. These can be lost. Like there are a multitude of ways and reasons why someone may not be able to provide 
a proper verification of identity or why um, uh, they won't, uh, if they, if they were there, it might not be, you know, legible one. And um, the state is very interested in making sure that everyone is, you know, ver- their identities are verified and that they can be tracked and, and so on and so forth. And, and the provision of public goods and services or private goods and services are, you know, can be watched and uh, regulated and monitored, right? This is not to say that that project in of itself is inherently justified just to say like, this is the rationale for Ardar, right? This is the rationale in which they're saying we are trying to keep records on every single person in this country. Um, and we're obviously not going to, from the perspective of the state, we're not going to abandon our efforts to identify everyone. We have created all these institutions to rely on identifying people, making them legible, categorizing them, indexing, blah, blah, blah. And so we're just going to uh, double down on it with a monstrous, massively si- uh, sized system um, where everyone is enrolled in a real, in a hard to fabricate verification system relying on biometric data, right? And so the biometric data system kind of starts, it's a three-pronged approach, right? So one, step enrollment. Um, and this process is one where you are giving Ardar your biometric and demographic information. And then that gives you a unique entry inside of the system, all right? Then you're seeding. And seeding is where you're, you're, you're taking this this registered information, and then you're adding it to the records in any other public or private databases where that unique entry can be used. So if you, you know anywhere that has your address and your name and that combination and so on and so forth gets the ID number, then using that, you know, to uh, prune away duplicate records. And then there's the authentication process, which is after you've deduplicated or in the process of deduplication. You have your unique identifier, and that unique identifier can be used to regulate your access um, to services or goods public offered by the state or offered by other corporations, right? By vendors, you know, by places of business, by by spaces, right? It, you know, anywhere where you would need to present your identity is going to be in one way or another mediated by this RDAR uh, verification service, right? And the goal here is to present RDAR's uh, biometric system as a sort of, quote, root identity, right? You have one core identifier, which is verifiable and unfalsifiable, ostensibly. And from there, you can use it to establish real records that can't be forged and records that, if lost, can be easily replicated or other forms of identification that do not rely on having this grand assortment. I guess like someone from Ardar, if they were here trying to pitch it to me, they would probably be like, hey, Ed, you remember when you went to the DMV and you um, spoke with three different clerks with the same amount of documents and they each gave you a different number of points of verification that you had and you had to reach a certain threshold of verification. It was six points to get a state ID. Well, with RDAR, you don't have to do any of that because we'll just verify your unique identifier and you need to know the unique identifier and then it will be linked to you automatically, right? And mm. blah, blah, and it can be linked to your biometric and that can be used as a way to verify it. Cool, whatever, nice. Would I still go for it? No. RDAR then, I think this is really interesting, that root identity 
comes into us also in the form of a really interesting uh, visual metaphor that they use um, mm. uh, called an hourglass, right? It's designed with an hourglass architecture in which, quote, a simple easy-to-use solution forms the waste of the hourglass, which allowing while allowing for innovation in multiple spheres, both above and below. Above and below. In Ardar's case, the waste consists of the Ardar number, a unique identifier for every individual, and authentic authentication services linked to this number. Below the waste lies innovation and design. In this case, biometric devices can capture fingerprints and iris data. Above the waste lies any application that might require an identity verification service. I that's I mean uh, as you know as the paper talks about that's a sort of like you know um, standard way to think through our uh, think through platforms but it is also really interesting to think about in this biometric system right in which on one hand they are developing the infrastructure and the the systems that will allow for biometric data to be an input to identify individuals and gatekeep access to various things but also on the other hand, by virtue of having that system, they're going to be developing the components. They're going to be developing the devices that read it and the devices that you know store it and the devices that uh, scan it and the devices that in one way or another are going to take it as an input and convert it into some other thing. And that would lead to a plethora of business, of firms, of uh, devices flourishing on either end, right? Which is um, what then begins to lead us to the questions, right? Okay, so you have this interesting, you have um, the immersion, the emergence of this uh, biometric data system, which is going to ostensibly uh, identify every single person. And you have it based on like an infrastructure or based on a metaphor where uh, there's plenty of room for the proliferation of goods and services that gatekeep people and devices that gatekeep people. And that the way that people look at this is, and, and also alluded to earlier in the paper, right? Most, a lot of people, when they look at India, specifically, you know, doing demographic analyses, they use the large numbers to cast doom and gloom statistics. But in this instance, the 1.2 billion people that uh, India have, they are considered uh, data rich. There are all sorts of places of orifices for these machines and for these processes and for these new methods and tactics to latch onto and suck data from and develop some, you know, ostensibly uh, for solely for verification of identity, a process that just, you know, keeps uh, surveilling more and more people over time. Yeah. And, you know, at a, at a larger level as well. I mean, we should also say like Adar is not uh, speculative. It's it's already real. Like they've already you know successfully enrolled more than a billion residents of India into this system. So this is not some. This is not like blueprints for a platform. This right. is like something that is already happening. Uh, and and it's very interesting as well. You know, a couple things. So you know, seeing. Uh, quotes from a uh, an activist for this group called Right to Food, which is a kind of you know food security uh, and and food distribution organized you know like NGO um, in India, and the, an activist for this for Right to Food told Singh, "quote Numbers are always against India." Uh, he explained that India's huge population exacerbates every problem the country faces. For example, a 1% error in digital services used by all Indians translates into challenges faced by approximately 13 million people. So there is like 
There's no room to maneuver here with error rates. If there's a glitch in the system, if something happens at the enrollment or, or deduplication or authentication processes, then, you know, it, even like I said, a 1% error rate translates to 13 million people being, uh, you know, screwed over in some way, essentially, right? Not being able to access uh, food subsidies, not being able to access private services. And it is also very interesting as well to, you know, to look at the way that Adar uh, as a, you know, we know all platforms mediate something. They are intermediaries. They sit in between uh, X and Y. Uh, so the question is, what is Adar mediating here as a platform. And and Singh has a really interesting analysis where he's essentially saying they're mediating the states and relationships. So there it's it's in a, a footnote uh in the article um that he says quote that Singh says quote an Adar number is issued to an Indian resident. Residents become citizens when they use Adar to secure other government services and they become customers when they use it to interact with private agencies. An Adar enrollee is simultaneously a resident, a citizen, and a customer, depending on where they use Adar and for what purpose. That's, I mean, that's also very interesting, like political subjectivity there, right? That like, you know, your status as a resident, a citizen, and a customer, all three very different political and economic positions in society, all three of those are mediated now by your Adar number, by your entry into the, the you know, biometric identity database. That, that's, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of power uh, added to one system. But I also do want to get at something that you were talking about as well, Ed, where it's like, why is, why is this happening? Why is India doing this? Why are they going for a, uh, a, a starting from scratch and quote building a clean database uh, rather than trying to you know clean up existing citizen records and other government databases? Uh, you know why start from scratch and why even have something like this from the beginning? You know the the it's a, uh, it's being administered and implemented by this government agency called the Unique Identification Authority of India. You're not wrong though that there is a lot to be said about having something having a number that makes you legible to both public and private services which is not always a bad thing right you do want to be made you do want to be legible when you when you are accessing a driver's license from the DMV for example or when you're um, trying to access social services like food subsidies or other welfare benefits. You want to be legible when you are trying to um, access services from private companies, right? Uh, you know, there, there, is, there is a purpose here. It, India is very large and it also has a lot of people who live be, you know, below the poverty line, who live in varying degrees of connection or disconnection from the state, from other, you know, public and private services who are legible to varying degrees and illegible to varying degrees who may or may not have any identity documents, you know, that that's also a thing as well where people just have no official identity documents, no way to prove who they are or where they live or where they're from or anything like that. So you can kind you can see how uh 
you know, India would be like, this is something we need. You know, this is a, we need this identity as a service platform um, to, to, to clean up everything, to get people uh, able to interact with institutions. It's something that is both different in, de in degree and kind from what many of us are more familiar with, you, you know, in places like the U.S. with like a social security number. You know, it's not, it's different in degree and kind, but it's also not so different as to be alien to us as well. Like the U.S. citizens have a social security number. Uh, you know, like I live in Australia, I have a tax filing number, right? Like I have all of these different numbers that the government gives you that are these unique identifiers that the government and by extension, other like employers, for example, use to see who you are. But what is really different here is both the scale, 1.2 billion people compared right. to Australia's like 24 million people, <laughs> which is a rounding error. Uh, and, <laughs> or even the US only has what, like 350 million people, give or take, right? Like the scale here is massive. Um, and it's also the centralization, right? It's mm -hmm. the fact that like, like your social security number or our social security number or my tax filing number uh, is not used in this same way as like a one-stop ultimate authority of identification, right? It's the only thing that you need. Um, there's, you know, I think this is something we'll go, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about as we go through it, but it really is this, this, you know, for, for, I think the government, this is about making things like legible, making it orderly, making it clean, all of that. And I think for, for people, Resi whether it's res whether you're a resident citizen or consumer the pitch really here the pitch here really is like convenience and certainty you can have the convenience of just having your adar number and you don't need anything else and you can just use that to you know as as your as your password essentially to access all of these different services or get through the you know this gate or that gate um, and there's a certainty there as well you know you have that you know it's not uh, you know, if everything goes according to, to plan, it's not going to get lost. It's not going to get forged. It's not going to get messed up in any way. It's there and you can rely on it. So you can kind you can see, as you're saying it, like you can see the arguments on both sides for uh, a system like Adam. opening up with the section on the technical hourglass. There's the sort of like recognition or understanding that like there are a lot of things that needed to go right or, you know, orienting the discussion towards the the technical elements, because I think those also for, for a second, because I think those also unveil some of the decisions about surveillance, you know, like they chose, like, of course they, they, they decided to settle on this massive computational system that would require as a, uh, and they put out, you know, petabytes of data storage, right? And it was not really clear at any point whether or not it was technically feasible, or at least it wasn't for a while clear that it was technically uh, feasible. Um, 
and that it would be a cost prohibitive process. It would be a compu- not just cost in terms of getting the machines, but that even operating them in a way to do the computations correctly might be difficult and organizing uh, or do, making the right, you know, sort of technical decisions to create some infrastructure uh, between all these different types of computing inf- uh, architectures might even be impossible. Um, or finding a vendor that could do it, trying to jerry rig the solution yourself. Um, like these sorts of, there are, there are, as a result, specific decisions that are made over time, right? Uh, to try and achieve this outcome. And early on, one of the steps that is talked about is like, you know, uh, I'll quote here in architectural terms, the choice was between designing Ardar with scale up architecture or open scale out architecture. On the one hand, information systems with scale up architecture are and then another quote, built up using specific technologies provided by one vendor who also provides the large hardware. Whereas the scale-up approach requires uh, or relies on buying customized hardware from a single vendor. On the other hand, information systems with scale-out architectures are built completely using open source or open technologies and allow the coexistence of heterogeneous hardware within the same application. The scale-out pr- approach relies on com- uh Sorry, the scale-out approach relies on combining standardized off-the-shelf hardware for multiple vendors for parallel computing. And so, and I, I think here, like the decision that the UIDAI chooses to do the open scale-out architecture, right, is to avoid, it, you know, ostensibly from their logic, to avoid vendor conflict and to try to incentivize parallel solutions or parallel um, parallel uh, uh, computing uh, processes to work through this um, and avoid uh, quote, uh, incentive or to, you know, pursue an incentive aligned design, right? That would allow for different parallel computing processes to compare one another and the cost and, and figure out a way to push the cost lower and increase the performance. But that is not the way that they typically did it. That's not the, typically the way that the Indian government handled uh, IT contracts, either by procuring them or also by operating them. Like typically they were outsourced. To one or more vendors, uh, they they would use large bids. Some of them no contest. Some of them through RFPs crafted by uh, uh, government uh, teams, uh, government project teams. And so this shift ends up trying to, or I guess it's interesting because this shift comes into conflict with um, the the traditional way of doing the government contracts, right? Where it's proprietary, black box. Um, and instead, what they do is they, they un- quote, we unpack them and sort of commoditize them, right? Give, rather than giving up control over Ardar to a vendor, the members commoditized vendor expertise by creating a government-oriented market for IT products and services and a new form of public-private partnership. Quote, it was not a good idea to force the use of specific software or hardware of any type. Instead, the focus should be on adopting open standards and using open source as prudent. I think that this is really interesting, right? And also something that we've talked about, and I think that Paris Marx has talked about, right? That the design architecture is not really where politics begins or ends, right? This isn't, they're choosing open source, open standards, open architecture, right? But they're not doing that in a way that challenges the task that they're going ahead with, which is a massive surveillance system, right? A bi- and, and, and a comprehensive uh, biometric system that can hold 1.2 individuals. You're figuring out which system works best so that they can reduce the cost uh, optimize efficiency, optimize compute, uh, computational power, right? It doesn't really matter whether to do open source or, scale or, um, or closed or like, you know, scale up or open out. Uh, at the end of the day, right, the architecture doesn't really have an impact on the, the political choice because the political choice is already made. The architecture has an impact on 
political economy may be right, where it's like now they've actually created a new market. They've created a new market that has further commodified some goods and services, some expertise, some knowledge, right? And created new relationships and new ways to privatize things that might not previously have been privatized, right? Or created new incentives to further subsidize or hand money over to corporations who are who are saying, okay, now we can offer some form of expertise that you might've just hired someone for. Now we're offering some new form of expertise you didn't know you needed before. Now we're offering some new form of expertise that's specific to these type of contracts that you're pursuing or this type of design philosophy that you're pursuing, right? I think that, you know, this development is, is, in, is important to think about because one thing that struck me was like, okay, almost all Ardar's software is open source minus like, the actual biometric component, right, that is used and deeply ingratiated in the surveillance. And that they that a lot of the choices I think that in other instances we would look at and see the absence, the presence of as indicative of the politics, really are just like uh puzzle pieces um to figure out how to solve the problem, which is a deeply political problem, right? But it's not the architecture doesn't really have a bearing on it. And I think that's something that like, you know, in a lot of our discussions, there is some times a a sort of fanatic focus on like the architecture, right? That if we build open source systems, they're resistant to surveillance as opposed to if we build open source systems, they can still just be used for surveillance because you can just have a government led project that decides it wants to use multiple vendors who are only using open standards and protocols, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, really good point because this particular article from Singh that we're going through is based on his ethnography uh, with the designers of the system. So, you know, we're getting a lot of this really juicy detail about the like the technical architecture and these choices that went into, you know, how to create it, um, how to solve these immense technical problems of creating a database that can do, you know, not only hold, uh, you know, uh, over a billion unique identifications, but also do deduplication of that uh, across multiple different databases. And, but, but you're exactly right here that like, we're often told, you know, we often look at to find the politics in a system. We look at what decisions were made in the, in the design of the system. I think you're exactly right that what this shows is that, you know, there were a lot of very political decisions made that were cast as essentially purely technical decisions. And because of that, because while the the, the politics is, is hidden here, it doesn't actually, it has no real bearing on the outcome in terms of like what the, like how the system works. Yeah, it, it's, this is a really like it's not what Singh is trying to do, but you're I think you're exactly right to pick out that there's a really interesting kind of counter argument baked in here about like open source does not mean inherently survey like anti surveillance. It does not mean inherently uh, more secure or more private. That it only means that if you couple the archi- the technical decisions about architecture with political decisions about purpose right like that right. that's that's what's required yeah so i mean so th- this is you know these are the real like really interesting parts of this technical hourglass of adar singh moves on to to then look at like 
you know, this organizational hourglass. It was, it, you know, it, it is kind of this technological triumph in a lot of ways because, you know, as Singh is, as Singh was talking about the very early on, um, back in like, uh, you know, uh, mid 2009 when they were conceptualizing this platform and figuring out what was needed to build it. And as they were trying to combine these strengths of like in, you know, government bureaucracy led project, but built by uh, essentially a startup, right. Or built with like the, the style and approach and mentality of a tech startup. And they were running these workshops with, you know, biometric experts who were essentially telling them that this is impossible. <laughs> you know, right. you will, you'll never be able to do this. Uh, the deduplication process alone is like way too uh, immense of a, of, a, of a computing problem. But lo and behold, you know, through some savvy technological decisions, even if they were bereft of more deep political reflections, you know, they were, they were able to do it, but that's not the end, right? Like building the hourglass platform architecture is not where Adar ends. That's really only the beginning here. So, you know, Singh talks about how quoting from um, a, a designer or an, uh, an engineer who was involved in designing uh, Adhar's infrastructural process spoke at length about ecosystems thinking and implementing Aadhaar. They said, quote, an Aadhaar number didn't have a particular bureaucratic purpose per se. It was simply intended to uniquely identify a person. The rest of the uses of Aadhaar is an extension of the ecosystem that leverages the number. Members reconfigured the work of the Indian bureaucracy through seeding and authentication by re-specifying identification as an end, a government service, rather than a means, a resource to accomplish other services. This is also a really interesting like inversion of means and ends that's at the heart of Aadhaar, of this identification as a service, where rather than trying, you know, a, a lot of times like identification government and and you know corporations in these services is a you know a, a means to do something else right we just we need to figure out a way to identify you so we can get on with doing something else it's very interesting to that Aadhaar was conceptualized as an end in and of itself the end here is to have identity what happens with this identity uh, that that's part of a much larger ecosystem of public and private services that builds on top of it. All we're concerned with is building the the identity as a service platform of main, of building it, maintaining it, operating this immense biometric identification database. In some ways, it's like it reminds me of uh, a response I so often hear from especially scientists and engineers who say, that's not my department, right? You ask them questions about like political issues or social implications or ethical quandaries. And they say, that's not my department. I'm just building a technology here. What you use it for 
that's up to you. Or maybe they'll say that's up to society to choose how this thing is used, right? Whatever outcomes come of it, that's not my fault. That's, a, that's the fault of how it was used. And that's someone else's job to come in and clean up the mess or to prevent this thing from being used in bad ways. I hear that argument so often. It's a really like uh, ready at hand way, like an ostrich, like put your head in the sand, right? To be like, I'm so focused on my one thing, in this case, building a massive uh, biometric identification platform. That yes, I understand it will be used for other purposes. We, we cannot concern ourselves with that. We have to get to this end, to this goal of having the platform before we can really think about what it might be used for, or what ecosystems might be built up around it. That's, it's, a, it's a really interesting and really common way to compartmentalize um, in, in people's minds, like the technical from the political, the technical from the social, and et cetera. Yeah, you know, I think that's why this why this metaphor is so interesting as a way to think about it. Both because, like, I think one thing that the waste hourglass metaphor does is capture how a platform can really only have like a vague sense of what it really wants to do, and that's the waste. Mm. And by virtue of existing and being subsidized and and anti competitively acting against other firms and also, you know, indulging investors in their fever dreams, flesh out those two other hourglasses, right? Flesh out the actual technical details of how they're going to do whatever the fuck they think they're going to do and flesh out the ecosystem and the reality and the vendors and the, uh, and the markets in which they're going to exist on. You know, I think um, like when that design team says like they don't actually know what the fuck we're you know, we're going to do, right? And uh, like, what ecosystems are we going to be involved in? You know, like, like falling back then on the, on the hourglass architecture as a well-known strategy, I think that belies, belies that point I just made where it's like, if you're falling back on the hourglass, part of it is also like the acknowledgement that, you know, you're going to make it up as you go along the way, right? that you can rationalize it as we are innovating and developing our own methods and our own protocols and our own ideal processes, you know, um, and our own relationships and our own technologies and our own proprietary shit. But it is more or less filling around in the dark. It helps if you're a startup like, uh, like the ones uh, behind our Darwar, uh, where you can get subsidies from the government and you don't really have to worry about the risk of failing. But it's still, um, it's still an interesting design strategy in highlighting how much of it is gobbledygook, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, because, I mean, it fills up. Over time, it just fills up much like an hourglass, right? And it ends up resembling something that feels real. Like this, this, I feel like we should probably, this makes me think that in one episode, we should talk about, there's a whole literature on these models of innovation, Mm. Uh, these like strategies, these methodologies, these metaphors for innovation that uh, when you really break them down, feel very much like uh, free balling it and Hail Marys. (laughs) (laughs) Like they don't really feel that concrete, but they have enough verbiage and they have enough um, 
here and there success stories and they have enough like semblance of a sort of internal logic that they do feel very real as a, as a as an approach for a platform, regardless of not of whether the platform actually works. And in Ardhar's case, even if the platform is likely technically impossible, I mean, clearly it's not because they've rolled it. I mean, well, clearly part of it is not because they've rolled out and, and, and enrolled about a billion people. But even if it's not, you just create the reality that you want. You know, when you digitize the future, like when we talk about digitization, I think digitization is a really good example of this, right? A lot of firms, when they're talking about digitization, they're also silently saying that like most of the things they in the vision that they're painting out don't actually exist, right? When Google Health or Amazon's health thing, whatever the fuck it's called, <laughs> are, are painting a picture for the future, they are envisioning a world in which you are surrounded by nodes that are collecting as much information as possible from you, and, and that this can somehow be collated and, 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 and gleaned insights into by certain devices that might be wearables or by uh, doctors that might not actually be human inside of uh, maybe inside of your home, inside of like a home that has like enough nodes and enough like of a fast internet connection between all the devices that it's real time updates and prognoses. None of that really exists, right? So what they end up doing is like advocating for the development of, or like advocate for introducing each step of their vision into your home, into your life so that you can over time become more aligned on it and rationalize them actually rolling out this something that looks like that master plan of what if we all lived on the cloud? You know, what if all our healthcare was on the cloud or some bullshit, right? And here I think, mm-hmm. and, and with, I just think that that's interesting that Ardwar, Ardar has like a platform mindset where it's like, okay, just get everyone on it. Just get everyone on it first, right? We'll figure out the ecosystem. We'll figure out the techniques. We'll figure out the computation. We'll figure out all that shit as we go along, right? We'll solve all these problems as we go along. That sounds like you're just rushing to pack before a long trip and then you get to your destination and realize that you packed 30 pairs of underwear but no pants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, to to give some credit to the engineers of Oddheart, like they did succeed in a massive technical feat, a technological feat. But no, all of you, you guys are are totally right here where the rubber really hits the road in the, in terms of that like, all right, you've got the technology. Now what happened? Now what happens with the organizational problems, which are fundamentally social problems of like enrolling people into this thing, of how it's going to be used, of how it's going to have disparate impacts on people depending on their positions in society, you know, their 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 class, uh, their you know, socioeconomics, all of that stuff. That's where the rubber really hits the road. But yeah, it, it is kind. Of, it is very much like this. Let's get the platform out. Let's pack the car, and then once we've done that, we can we can we can work out all those things. Mm-hmm. Those are just bumps mm-hmm. in the road. We need to get on the road. That, right. Uh, Singh has a really revealing quote here as well from a uh, a person that was involved in the marketing of Adhar, because you know that's also part of it, right? Is that it's not like a field of dreams where if you build it, they will come, you know, it's like you have to build it and then you have to like get people in there. You, you have to convince people, you know, this is what they must do or coerce people into doing it. You know, and that, and that causes its, its own organizational problems uh, to overcome. So this is a really interesting quote here where they said, If you look at the waste, the hourglass waste, you quickly realize that because its function is controlled by a single entity, the UIDAI in our case, 
It looks like a naturalized monopoly. It is easier to implement this if you are a government body. But imagine if you were trying to do this as a private company. It becomes a marketing nightmare. (laughs) Which is not wrong, right? They're totally (laughs) right. right. It's like, like, yeah, it's a government body. They have a monopoly over this. um, and, And they can, by coaxing and cajoling or by force alone, they can get you on the system. But yeah, imagine if you are... Uh, Google or Amazon or Facebook trying to do this, it becomes this nightmare of marketing to tell people this is good, you need to do it. And when what ends up, I mean, what we end up seeing in the case of, you know, like Facebook does have over a billion users, right? But in those cases, we see that there's a lot of duplicity and lying and deceit uh, that goes into it, right? There's a lot of tricking. Uh, people into the into the platform or into uh, giving over data. There's a lot of locking people into the platform, right? So it is very interesting to see how uh, the the designers and marketers and maintainers of this platform are very self consciously comparing themselves to these very large platforms, like you know, designers of Adhar um, of Adhar. Singh has a really great quote, right? They uh, Members enthusiastically brought up Aadhaar's success and enrolling more than a billion residents. Quote, Aadhaar's user appropriation rate is the same as WhatsApp, right? Which which is interesting because like, that's, that's what they're comparing their success to, right? Mm-hmm. They're comparing their success to WhatsApp, right? Being like, we have more users or as many users as WhatsApp. Uh, the, you know, and and, and they're, again, they're not wrong that technologically they've succeeded in doing that. But there's a lot that goes on in terms of actually main, like managing the enrollment processes here, right? Like we talked, you talked about at the top of the show that there's kind of three processes. Once you've got the platform, now there's three processes that need to go on, right? You need to enroll it, get people on it. You need to seed it. You know, you need to deduplicate. Uh, other other records across different government databases and and replace it with the Aadhaar number and you need to do authentication right you need to make sure people are who they say they are and get all that uh, demographic data and 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 bio, you know f- fingerprints and iris scans and all that Singh talks about how the there's like this big network of en- of enrollment agencies that are managed by the government agency to get people on the system but you know, India is a huge place with a lot of people and and that means that you know there's a lot of these different enrollment officers and agencies involved uh, in getting people on the system and they they talk about how uh, Singh talks about how quote data analytics allowed UIDAI officials to monitor and evaluate the enrollment of every resident of course the data analyzed did not represent the street level complexities of enrollment but it offered quantitative measures to evaluate the performance of every enrollment operator in situ just real quick we in, in the next episode and we're going to wrap up here soon with this one uh we will get much more in depth into what Singh calls the street level complexities of enrollment because we can start seeing really interesting and revealing details coming about of how the system envisions like a, a model of a of a of a subject or a user or a citizen or a resident who can be readily datafied. But the realities of people being different and living different lives and different conditions means that they very often that some that some people uh, resist 
you know, in very physical ways, like their bodies are just not able to be enrolled uh, into the system. It's very interesting stuff that we'll get into in the in the Patreon episode. But I want to quote very interesting in terms of like these quantitative measures, this kind of like uh, management from a distance um, that the, the centralized authority is able to do over these broad networks of enrollment agencies. Um, Singh is here quoting from someone at the UIDAI where he says, quote, when the user or operator logs into the system and starts a new enrollment, they move from screen to screen, moves back, corrects data, and so on. Every one of those events is logged. All this data is sent back to the server and processed. So now we have a clear view of what the operator is doing that allows us to even correlate behavior with quality of enrollment. We interestingly found that when operators behave badly in one aspect, they behave badly in others also. For operators doing badly, there was sort of a shaming process where you send back a report highlighting the best and the worst. If they consistently didn't get their act up, some people were no longer part of the system. So it's very interesting to see how they've, in order to manage this very complex, wicked problem of enrollment, they've they've relied on a very like data-intensive automated system of finding enrollment officers who are not doing a good job and then finding ways of like shaming them or, or, you know, making sure they were no longer part of the system. Nice euphemism there. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So that it's, it's, it is also interesting to, to relate that to other forms of like platform algorithmic management that we've talked so much about here with like the gig economy. Like there's a lot of parallels here in terms of like, how do you use Data uh, collection, like data collection and algorithmic management, to administer a very large and spatially dispersed workforce, right? Whether they're delivering your McDonald's or enrolling you into Aadhaar, <laughs> it's like all essentially the same problem in their eyes. And I think you know, I wonder. I also, I also wonder. And, you know, we'll talk about this more, but like the lessons that other states would garner from, or maybe, you know, tease the listener with it, like the lessons that other states would garner from Ardar, you know, because I think Ardar kind of did solve the hard questions, right? If you can do it in a, in a country with a billion people, and if you can figure out ways to do it, whatever the architecture design are, and if you can figure out ways to do it, whether or not you actually have an ecosystem to do it, and if you can figure out ways to do it without having the markets or the talent or the or the, um, you know, relationships or contracts to do it, if you can do it despite all those things, and you can really do it anywhere, especially in countries like ours, where there's pretty extensively developed surveillance system, types of biometric systems that are not complete, but are overlapping or piecemeal, and they just really have yet to been consolidated, thank God. Um, or maybe they have, and we just don't know about it, <laughs> you know. Um, and I do, and I, and, and so reading that first paper, right. Before going on to seeing like an infrastructure got me wondering like, okay, um, if this is the database on which, or this is like the sort of logic, right. Guiding the construction of the database and then the technology itself, then what would it look like? Or how does it relate to other states when they're dealing with these huge data systems, how they're going to deal, how they're going to integrate it into their bureaucracies, how they're going to integrate it into the state's daily functions, how they're going to use it to control uh, citizens, right? How they're going to use it to dole out power. How they're going to use mm-hmm. it to 
to control life and death? What, if any, role would a data system play in changing the ways in which uh, states have biopower and necropower, but just in general, the way in which they operate? Beautiful segue there, Ed. Beautiful segue to the last point here in this paper um, is really one of a, of, a, of a change in that model of how states operate, of the very purpose of the government, right? So, um, you know, Singh concludes this paper talking about how, you know, Thinking through the success of one billion Aadhaar enrollments, uh, members or designers and engineers of the platform ultimately argue for a shift from pipes to platforms in designing government services. And, and, and the idea here is essentially to, to quote one of the designers of Aadhaar, we believe that the fundamental nature of government is a platform. This platformized government will collect real-time data on its services to evaluate and supplement their efficiency. By correctly structuring incentives, leveraging the power of markets, and designing robust technology solutions generating real-time data, entire bureaucracies can be accommodated on a central dashboard. This really harkens back to... A, a very recent episode we have of the you know state as a platform, right? It's essentially what if instead of a government you had AWS, and then the government becomes like AWS, a service provider for other services, right? They they become the, you know in this case Aadhaar is a identity you know identity as a service provider, which other services public and private then use like an AW, like an AWS feature. Right. Like that is really the model here of government that is being proposed and put into practice. Uh, and, you know, in, through Aadhaar, we talked about it in terms of like in France, hearing from a very similar, uh, you know, bureaucrat and policy person in the French government talking about that same exact thing. You know, that that's the the book that's tied the book that uh, the person co-author titled Let's Uberize the State Before Someone Does It For Us. That's that is a lot of what's going on here. That, you know, so there's larger questions at play of what does this mean when citizens become data records? And when governments become platforms, it's not just a difference in degree, it's a difference in kind. It's not just, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's just neoliberalism, right? No, it's something different. It's something new that's happening here. So very interesting stuff. And we're only scratching the surface here, right? Like we've just laid out the kind of technical and organizational foundation of understanding Aadhaar. Um, Now there's a lot more to get into, but that's going to wrap us up for this episode. This has already been an action-packed episode. So (laughs) I want to Thank everybody for listening. Um, just to you know, be very clear again, we're we're building on the work of Ranjit Singh, who's a postdoc at Data and Society, um, and we're gonna there'll be links to his papers that we're that we're discussing here in the episode description. So do check those out if you're interested, or 
follow along with us at patreon.com slash this machine kills, um, where we're going to dive deeper into this and dive deeper into those more social and political um, questions, dive deeper into those really crucial details of what's it actually look like to do enrollment, to get a billion plus people onto a platform like this. Um, and, and so subscribe there for that. Uh, and also for our whole backlog of really awesome premium episodes, as well as all the ones that are coming in the future. It's a, it's a dollar and a pound bargain at any price. <laughs> so with that, I think I'm going to wrap up the show. Um, thank you all again for listening and see you in the premium feed later. Adios.
Ciao.